I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Foxhole, finding shelter in science, philosophy, and faith in the chaos of life. This week, our theme is trauma in the age of coronavirus. We'll hear about the latest science from California Surgeon General Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who says that sustained stress can lead to all types of health problems. The cumulative dose of adversity is actually the the indicator that is the most harmful. And one of the things that makes this pandemic really challenging is the accumulation of traumas. And then, how have different spiritual communities responded to trauma historically? And what lessons do they offer us now? One rabbi says we hold the key to resiliency. No matter what trauma you are enduring, you you can control your own narrative, the meaning that you make out of your suffering. That's all coming up on KCRW's Foxhole. In recent decades, there's been a lot of research about how trauma and toxic stress can literally change our bodies for the worse. It can alter our brains, our immune system, even our genetics. One person who's been pushing this science into the public sphere is Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who also happens to be California's Surgeon General. Her TED Talk, called How Childhood Trauma Affects Health Across a Lifetime, has been viewed millions of times, and she's gone on to write an acclaimed book on the topic. So to learn more about how today's pandemic could impact the health of our country moving forward, we're now joined by Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. So I can imagine what a strange and unique situation this must be for you. I mean, you get appointed as the Surgeon General in California, and then suddenly we have this incredible pandemic. There's all this attention on vaccines and antibodies. And yet as a trauma specialist, I wonder if you were also looking at this pandemic as an emerging mental health crisis. Absolutely. I think that a lot of People are feeling a lot of stress just because of the pandemic, which is a very reasonable thing to be stressed out about. But then um, in addition to that, we recognize that some of the the measures that the necessary measures, right, that we have to take to combat the pandemic uh, in terms of uh, you know, businesses closing, schools closing, the the shelter in place and remain at home orders. That uh for me, I would say that's the one thing that I lose sleep over at night is a recognition that for a lot of us, uh, you know, we're in a position where we can withstand that and home is a safe place. But there are a lot of people across our state and across our country for whom that isn't the case, right? Um uh, there are quite a number of people for whom that economic disruption can be devastating. And then in addition to that, uh, there's quite a number of people for whom their their home is not a safe place. So we already see rates of intimate partner violence uh, increasing. And actually reports of child maltreatment have been decreasing, which is the thing that terrifies me most, because I think that we recognize that it's not that child maltreatment is decreasing. In all likelihood, it's actually increasing. But what we see is that kids are no longer coming into contact with the teachers and the coaches and the the ministers or the rabbis, whoever it is who uh, in their community who might recognize and be the person to identify that a child needs help. So that's certainly very, very concerning. Right. I mean, these are the people that that would contact Child Protective Services that would try and get the child help. Um, Well, let's move back a little bit in your career here. And 
kind of talk about the first time you started to notice um, this correlation between early childhood trauma, or you call it an adverse childhood experience, and what could be really uh, devastating health outcomes later in life. Where did that begin for you? Where this began for me, frankly, was um, in my career as a pediatrician. I, uh, when I finished my residency training at Stanford, I opened a clinic in one of San Francisco's uh, most underserved neighborhoods. And what I started seeing was a really worrisome trend, which was that my patients who had the worst health outcomes, ranging from you know, asthma to attention deficit to autoimmune disorders, those patients also were the ones who were, had the greatest histories of exposure to adversity, like growing up in a household where there was abuse or neglect happening or having a parent who was mentally ill or substance dependent or kids who were witnessing uh, domestic violence at home. And uh, so I, that's what got me looking into the science of how is it early adversity affects the developing brains and bodies of kids. Yeah, in your book, you tell this one incredible story of a young man named Diego. Could, could you just quickly tell that story for us? So, so Diego was really um, a, 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 the patient that, that crystallized a lot for me. So he was a, a seven-year-old boy who was brought in by his mom to see me for a physical exam. And part of the reason why his mom brought him in was because his teachers were concerned that he might have attention deficit disorder and um, they wanted a prescription for Ritalin. And when I did his physical, what I noted was that he was having a lot of trouble with attention and impulse control, but he also had some other health conditions, asthma and eczema. But the thing that struck me the most was that even though this child was seven years old, his height and weight were the 50th percentile for a four-year-old. And I was shocked. He was, he was itty bitty. And when I looked at his growth charts, it looked like he had experienced a, a growth arrest at age four. And so when I was talking with his mom and asking, number one, when did the behavioral problem start, right? And also what was going on with his history? It turned out that he had experienced a sexual assault at age four. And that really seemed to be the, the trigger for all of his health problems. Right. And I mean, to me, that story is just mind blowing. It's a reminder that this correlation between trauma and health ailments is just nothing we think about. So um, let's go a little bit deeper. What really begins to happen in the body when we experience something like, say, a, a sexual assault? Yeah. So um, in the course of, you know, investigating the science so that I could appropriately care for my patients, uh, when I was, uh, you know, dove into what the research says about how early adversity affects 
uh, children's developing brains and bodies. I came across a study that was really the landmark study, which I frankly, I had never heard of it before. I didn't learn about it in medical school or residency. But at the time that I was caring for Diego, that study was now 10 years old, and it was called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And it was conducted by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente. And in that study, they asked about 10 categories of adverse childhood experiences. And those include physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, physical or emotional neglect, or growing up in a household where a parent was mentally ill, substance dependent, incarcerated, where there was parental separation or divorce, or domestic violence. And what they found were two things that were really striking. Number one was that these adverse childhood experiences were incredibly common. Two-thirds of their study population of 17,000 adults had experienced at least one, and one in eight folks had experienced four or more. But the second thing that they found was that there was this really strong dose-response relationship, meaning the more of these that you were exposed to, the greater your risk was for not just the thing that we think about when we think about childhood adversity, things like um, you know depression, anxiety, and other uh, mental uh, health disorders, but also um, uh, and things like substance dependence uh, and other things, but also things like heart disease, right? Ischemic heart disease, the number one killer in the United States. If you have for an individual who has four or more adverse childhood experiences they're twice as likely to have heart disease. Uh, we saw the same thing for cancer. They were three times as likely to have chronic lung disease and, you know, and on and on, increased risk of asthma, diabetes, autoimmune disease, even Alzheimer's. When we look at why that happens, it's because there's been this emerging science that now shows us that when we're exposed to a stressor, something, something traumatic, and especially during this vulnerable time of development in childhood, that our body released stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. And these stress hormones change the way our brains, our hormonal systems, our immune systems, and even our DNA ultimately functions. Right, And so we now understand that these long-term changes are what scientists now call the toxic stress response. So just out of curiosity, say you were to put someone through, let's say, an MRI machine and, and have a chance to look at what their brain looked like, someone who's been under extreme levels of stress or trauma in their childhood. I mean, what would it look like? So um, likely what you'd see, and, and scientists have done this, right? So what, what we see is that the amygdala, the part of the brain that is responsible for your fear response, can actually be um, physically enlarged, right? So we see increased size of the amygdala. And then we also see shrinking of the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain that's responsible for memory and learning. But interestingly, if you look at, so if you, have an, if you have an MRI machine, you'll see some of these changes in the structure of the brain. But there's also something called an fMRI, a functional MRI, which actually looks at brain electrical activity in different regions. And what we see 
is reduced activity, right? Uh, so, so not a difference in structure, but a difference in activity in the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that's responsible for impulse control and judgment and executive functioning. Yeah. And I mean, when you say something like executive function or impulse control, I guess I think of something like ADHD or an anxiety disorder. So is that kind of what we're talking about? Well, it may and it may not. Let me say that what we see is behavior is the canary in the coal mine right? Especially when we're talking with kids. And we see um, many kids have increased risk of learning and behavior problems, right? But interestingly, and, and I will say to that point, my, my team did a research study and we found that of kids in my clinical practice, if they had four or more adverse childhood experiences, they were 32 times as likely to have learning and behavior problems as a child with zero ACEs. So we definitely, definitely see increased risk of uh, learning and behavior problems. But in that same study of my patients who had four or more adverse childhood experiences, 52% of them, slightly more than half, had learning and behavior problems, but the other 48% didn't. And one of the things that it's important to recognize is that for some individuals, the impact is on behavior. But for some individuals, the impact is on their immune system, right? Some kids have uh, overactive uh, uh, immune system. Some, uh, some individuals, uh, the impact may be on their hormones. And so, for example, with Diego, his biggest manifestation, I mean, he had trouble with his behavior and he also had asthma, but his biggest manifestation was the fact that he stopped growing. Right. And that was is really the hormonal impacts of trauma on his body. You also said it could have potential genetic impacts. Can you say more about that? That's right. So what we see is that um, there are two ways that it can uh, that the experience of uh, adversity can impact our uh, genes. So one way is through uh, an effect on our telomeres. Telomeres are the uh, sequences on the ends of our DNA. I like to think of them as like um, like a, a bumpers on the on the front and the back of your car, right? They uh, when you're exposed to toxins or uh, different challenges, it wears down your DNA. And these, these sequences help to protect your DNA for wear and tear. So these telomeres erode faster than anything else in your DNA. Now, trauma and adversity also leads to faster erosion of these protective sequences on the ends of our DNA. And if they erode too quickly, what we see is that there's increased risk for things like premature cell death or even abnormal DNA replication leading to something like cancer. So that's one way. But the other way is that high doses of adversity can affect the way our DNA is read and transcribed. So it's not a change to our genetic sequence, right? But actually there are markers on our DNA that determine how our DNA is read and transcribed. So you can imagine, right, if, a, if you know, back in the day or we're out in the wilderness, if there's hardship for a parent to communicate to a child through their genetic sequence, 
that the DNA, uh, that they're experiencing hardship, it would take a long time for evolution to, to catch up to the challenges of the day, right? But it turns out our environment determines our epigenetic regulation, these markers that sit on top of our DNA to determine which sequences are red and which aren't. I like to think of it as if your DNA is the, are the musical notes, right, on a, on a sheet of music, your epigenetic markers are like the musical notations. They determine how loudly or softly uh, a certain piece of DNA is, is played or, or read, um, if you will. And so what happens is that if an individual has experienced high doses of verse, adversity, those epigenetic markers tell ourselves to make more or less of certain proteins that are responsible for the stress response, right? And so the higher the, the adversity that we experience, the greater the epigenetic programming to create an overactive stress response. So we see changes in the regions of the brain and changes in our stress response because of differences in the way our DNA is being read and transcribed. And, and what's crazy is that I remember reading that this is something that you can pass on to future generations. I mean, if you're somebody that has endured an incredible amount of trauma, um, this can be given to your children. Is that correct? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, what we now understand is that in addition to handing down your genetic code from parent to child, you also hand down these epigenetic markers. And these epigenetic markers... Um, uh, influence the way our, our genetic code is read and transcribed. Absolutely. I want to try and connect this now with what we're seeing with the coronavirus, because uh, we've been talking about children and trauma, but, but I think a lot of this can be applied to adults as well in terms of how stress can change our bodies. And one main stressor right now is simply being alone. I mean, just the amount of isolation we're dealing with. I read a study from a researcher at Brigham Young who said that social isolation led to an increased rate of mortality of 29%, which is crazy. In other words, it's just, it's just not good losing touch with all the people around us. Is this something that concerns you? Absolutely. It's not only important for adults, but it's doubly important if you're a parent. Because what we understand is that connecting to other people, right, does it, it releases all of these healthy hormones that help to combat the stress response, right? So it, it physiologically is good for you. But in addition, for us as caregivers, our kids, kids are wired to be tuned into their parents, right? They're looking to their parents for cues as to whether the environment is safe or not. And so one of the most important things that we can do is actually work on practicing that self-care, doing that, um, you know, regular exercise, right? So that we are metabolizing those stress hormones and burning up all that adrenaline and cortisol, uh, doing things like getting regular uh, sleep, and making sure that we're doing good nutrition, um, things like mindfulness, which actually help to strengthen the, the part of the nervous system that counteracts the fight or flight response, right? This, this resting and digesting the parasympathetic nervous system. So these are all things that we can do to help to combat the harmful effects of stress during this time. 
Yeah, and I think of the isolation as a stressor that all of us are dealing with. But then there are the truly traumatizing and and heartbreaking stories out there. I mean, in New York City, doctors and nurses seeing dozens of people die in their hospitals every day as they make decisions about who gets ventilators. And and you hear these doctors say that their lives will never be the same after this. Um, Stories about loved ones unable to be at their partner's sides when they die or funerals that can't be attended. So... I don't know, from a a mental health standpoint, this seems pretty severe. Uh, Without a doubt, without a doubt. And that is, so one of the things that we learned from the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study and the subsequent body of work is that the cumulative dose of adversity is actually the, the indicator that is the most harmful. And one of the things that makes this pandemic really challenging is the accumulation of traumas, right? So it's not just the fear of the pandemic. It's not just for many people, the economic hardship they're experiencing, but it's also the the fear for their loved ones, losing loved ones, for, for our frontline healthcare workers, the physical exhaustion of working as much as folks are doing. And on top of that, the fear that they experience for themselves of being exposed or bringing that um, or exposing their loved ones. And then on top of that, the decision making when they're overwhelmed, because, you know, one of the biggest challenges about a pandemic, right, is that when we look at all the challenges that we've had around getting, um, you know, ventilators and testing and personal protective equipment, Everyone in the world needs those things at the same time, right? So all of our usual systems of support and coping are being dramatically disrupted right now, right? So we're having high levels of stress and adversity, and then all of the our usual coping mechanisms and support are really being disrupted. And that's why it's so important for us to be Uh, staying connected, checking in. And frankly, if anyone's ever thought about getting mental health care or ever, you know, has, has, you know, uh, worked with a mental health provider in the past, now is a really good time to be checking back in with your mental health provider or seeking out a mental health provider. Um, And, you know, that was one of the things that was a priority for us. We made a whole mental and behavioral health, um, uh, emotional well-being page on our state website, covid19.ca.gov, where someone can go and get those um, emotional support resources because um, this is like, this is not a time to be shy about seeking mental health care. It is absolutely critical. So this actually reminds me of one more study I remember seeing. I think this one was from NYU. And um, it said about half the people impacted by Hurricane Katrina developed mental health disorders due to the loss of homes, loved ones, income, a lot of the things you just mentioned there. So I don't know, if we take a step back and think about this, do you think we're going to see almost a a COVID-19 generation of people that are scarred by this? And if so, what kind of ailments are we looking at moving forward here? Yeah, well, what the evidence shows, you're absolutely right. The likelihood that we are going to see an increase in a whole variety of health concerns. So uh, mental and behavioral health disorders, 
certainly things like depression, anxiety, panic disorder, PTSD. Uh, but in addition, um, substance use and dependence likely to go up. Uh, in addition, uh, family violence, child maltreatment, intimate partner violence, all of these stress-related health conditions. But not only that, uh, so my team has been, uh, exactly what you're describing is what the governor has charged me and my team with investigating. And one of the things that we looked at was even, for example, after an earthquake in Japan, right? One of the things that we saw was that the researchers found was that blood pressure went up by an average of 15 millimeters of mercury. And so we were seeing greater rates of, um, you know, heart attacks and strokes and things like that. So any stress-related chronic disease is um, it likely to worsen right now, and we're likely to see increased prevalence. And that is why we have very much focus. So here in California, we just issued guidance to all of our health plans and all of our healthcare providers to say, everyone needs to be on the lookout. We are at significant risk of stress-related negative health outcomes. And here's what to look for. So we sent our healthcare providers all of these lists. And then we also sent some recommendations because there are, when you can predict it, right, hopefully you can do some mitigation. So we're trying to be really proactive One of the things I saw in your playbook for kind of how to counteract a lot of the things we're looking at here is something you've mentioned, uh, mindfulness, or it could also be prayer. That caught my attention, too. Can you can you go just a little bit further into those as as ways to kind of um, balance kind of the tension and trauma we may be feeling? Yeah, so um, mindfulness and specifically, there's been a lot of research and data on meditation showing that uh, meditation is associated with reduction in cortisol levels, reduction in uh, heart rate and blood pressure, uh, and also changes in uh, the parts of the brain. So at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about the amygdala, the impact on the prefrontal cortex. And what we see is that meditation is associated with strengthening uh, the part of the brain that's associated with recovery post-provocation and reducing the overall impact of adversity and and, uh, reducing the, the, the stress activation in the brain. And so really, you know, doing that mindfulness meditation, the 20 minutes twice a day, right, is, is associated with in research studies in really helping to reduce that stress response, which um, can be protective. And interestingly, uh, there have been studies on heart disease where they looked at meditation as an intervention for heart disease. And in some of these studies, they've seen some protective benefit in terms of cardiovascular health as well. I heard actually in an article that, that you practice transcendental meditation. Is that, is that correct? I do. Yeah, I do. And I, <laughs> now more than ever, in fact, I, um, I, I have my, my regular meditation practice. And I actually downloaded um, an app on my phone. There's an app from uh, Plum Village, which is a, a, a monastery in France. And I went to a, um, 
a, a scientific conference on neuroscience and meditation in um, in Plum Village last year, and I downloaded the the app. And one of the things that's been great for me is that they have a function on their app where you can set it so that a, a mindfulness bell will go off once an hour. And that's just a reminder. So I've set that for myself now, and it's really helping me that it's just a reminder for myself that once an hour when I hear that bell, I just pause what I'm doing and I take, you know, three mindful breaths and I and I calm my physiology down and it really helps me to stay focused because we get wound up, you know, during the day. And the more that we practice that, the more we kind of entrain that, um, that self-regulation into our brains and bodies. Well, finally, as we look into the future, are there any kind of new remedies coming online or things we might hear about that, that help to treat um, trauma or, or some of the things that we've been talking about? One intervention that I uh, previously deployed in when I was formerly at running the Center for Youth Wellness was we actually used an intervention called neurofeedback. And, you know, many of your listeners may be familiar with the term biofeedback. Biofeedback is when you, you know, you, you hook, you're hooked up to a bunch of electrodes and it reads your heart rate and a bunch of other signals uh, from your body. And then you uh, do some practices to be able to regulate your physiology. With neurofeedback, which is something that we did for our kids at the Center for Youth Wellness, it actually uses EEG electrodes, right? And that, that are stuck onto the scalp. And kids play video games with their brain, right? So it's literally, they're looking at a screen and they're trying to get, you know, a character on a screen to do a certain thing or, you know, get a roller coaster to, to run on a track. And they do it by um, calming their, their brains and bodies down. And they do it with regulating their breath. And when the EEG senses that the brain waves are moving into a calming pattern, it activates the video game and it goes. And kids are really good at this, as it turns out. And it just trains the brain to be able to uh, regulate and move towards Uh, move out of the fight or flight state and move into the calmer state. I've been speaking with California's Surgeon General, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. Thank you so much for the time. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. And stay safe and be well. This is KCRW's Foxhole. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll continue with today's theme, trauma in the time of coronavirus. Historically, when horrific events happen, some people turn to their spiritual communities for support and for guidance. In fact, a number of religious traditions, like Judaism, have endured generations of atrocities, but have managed to continue on. So after hearing about what this stress is doing to our bodies, we'll now hear from two spiritual leaders from very different backgrounds about how they understand trauma in their traditions. Imam Jihad Turk is founding president of Bayan Claremont Islamic Graduate School. Jihad, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And Rabbi Dr. Tirza Firestone is a Jungian psychotherapist, author, and leader in the international Jewish renewal movement. Rabbi Firestone, thanks for the time. No, it's my pleasure. 
Well, Rabbi, this is something you've specifically written about, which is understanding a legacy of trauma, intergenerational healing, and then moving forwards into the future. So for you, where does this conversation begin? As we've just heard from uh, Dr. Burke Harris, enduring stress can be become toxic. It can become uh, really bad for us. And so the question that I've been carrying is because the Jewish people have really are no strangers to adversity and long-term trauma in the form of all, all kinds of forms, religious discrimination and persecution wherever Jews lived for really for thousands of years. And so I've been asking how, how did our ancestors face into that trauma uh, so that it didn't deplete them? It didn't uh, destroy their courage and their faith. How did they survive? And, and, and then the following question, of course, how can we meet the challenges of our day, which are also unprecedented yeah. with the same kind of courage and resiliency and care for one another? Say more about kind of the history of trauma there. I mean, we know there's been uh, traumatic events in, in the present, shootings in synagogues. But, I mean, does your reading of, of trauma go back, I, I take it, probably thousands of years? It does. We come from a long legacy of trauma, and yet we have survived, and yet we have kept reinventing ourselves. And really, that's what we are being asked to do today is uh, how can we sort of lean into what's happening to us and be ingenious about it, <laughs> be courageous, uh, reach out with each other and come up with new forms of thinking, new practices, new ways of worship, uh, new ways of caring for ourselves and for each other during this this uh, rather surreal time. Uh, Jihad Turk, where does your mind go when we start to talk about trauma, especially within the Islamic faith? Well, the uh, the scripture of the Quran uh, indicates that it's the human condition that we will face trials and tribulations that uh, will will uh, rock us to our core. And I think the role of faith is to help us navigate through those challenges and come out stronger. It helps us become resilient as individuals and also collectively as a community. What are you telling some of your community members right now, Jihad? What, what are some of the messages that you're bringing them um, from, from Scripture? Well, one of the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad is that the true believer will um, face different scenarios, some uh, good fortune, some misfortune, but the mindset of the true believer is to face whatever adversity or even even good fortune with the same mindset, which is to recognize that God is good, that God is loving, that uh, that God is also all-powerful and all-knowing. And so although we don't quite understand the wisdom of what it is that we're facing, we know that if our response is the right response, then it will be good for us. And the right response is to conduct ourselves in a way that is uh, loving and caring towards one another, that is in service of each other, and that is uh, also trying to take care of ourselves and, and be in tune with what it is that we need in order to get through whatever challenge we're facing. Rabbi Firestone, could you respond to that? Do, do some of those words resonate with your tradition as well? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. We want to rise to higher ground. But uh, I think I would add to what uh, Imam Jihad just said by saying that 
it's important not to skip over our feelings. This is very anxiety producing times. So don't be afraid to face the losses uh, that and the uncertainty, just to, to feel your feelings. But don't let yourself get too alone with them. Don't let yourself get too isolated. Reach out and connect uh, to old and new friends, connect by phone, letter, any way possible. Screen, of course, with whom people with whom you can share your experiences. And then, uh, like we just heard from Jihad, to energize our faith. Uh, energize our faith in a power that is larger than ourselves. Whatever that is, our connection to God by whatever name we use, Allah, El, uh, Shekhinah, whatever name, but it, that might also be just a faith in the power of goodness and the power of goodness. And we see the power of goodness everywhere nowadays. Uh, you know, I'm just so moved by the frontline workers every day risking their lives for us. We see it pouring out in the form of music out windows to neighbors, all the free help and offerings that we that we're getting online. Ask. So we want to ask the question, how can I add to the power of goodness? How can I help tip the scales in this world in favor of a more compassionate, kinder world? What can I do? Even small things are so important right now. Everything that we do is so important. So even a smile, you know, or a wave beyond the mask that we're wearing to someone who's who we see across the street or, uh, you know, offering help, offering to make food, doing whatever we can do, first by taking care of ourselves and then reaching out. You know, one of the things that uh, that uh, Rabbi Firestone reminds me of is a story in the Quran that's also told in, in the Hebrew Bible of Moses, who, you know, was raised in a by his arch enemy, right? And then he uh, stands up for justice and ends up, uh, you know, fleeing for his life only to settle and then be called back to face the traumatic, uh, um, you know, uh, situ- circumstance that he fled from, right? This tyrannical force that wants to take him out and uh, to go back and, and preach to him, right? And to save the Jewish people. This story is also told in the Quran. But what, you know, one of the narratives in, this, in the Quran, and, and, and it's through storytelling, by the way, that we are able to connect to uh, members of our, of, our, of our faith communities, uh, whether it's biblical stories or Quranic stories or contemporary stories like, like, like we hear about people doing great things. So in the case of Moses, you know, when he is, uh, when he, in the Quranic narrative, when he approaches the burning bush, God tells him, you know, I want you to go and face Pharaoh and try and, and free your people. Moses's response is, you know, reflects a person facing trauma. His, in the Quranic narrative, his first response is, let me breathe. Let me process what you've just asked me to do. Um, yes, he just spoke to God, which is pretty uh, an, an incredible experience. But then also the very real uh, palpable fear that he must have uh, felt to go and, and face down this tyrant. And so in many ways, we draw from that lesson of, you know, sort of self-care. Let me breathe. Make this task for me easy you know, that kind of attitude and posture that the prophet Moses had to, to face his, his difficulty, we draw from that in facing whatever challenge that we face. That yes, God is going to have us, going to put us through some difficult times, but let us, you know, sort of process and put things in perspective and ultimately do what we're able to do and know that God will, will, will be there uh, every step of the way. 
I love that uh, you, uh, the imam, is uh, sharing a Passover story. It's uh, it's lovely because we're uh, one of my messages also is how do we draw on the faith and the courage of our ancestors? And we have a shared ancestor here, Moses. Uh, and uh, you know, in in Passover though. There are two different narratives we the, the Jews read, two different psychologies when we do the, our Passover Seder. Uh, one is a song we sing that says, in every generation, dark forces are going to rise up against us to gobble us up, to destroy us. And this is our lot. And we have to call on God to, to save us. Uh, but basically, we're always at odds with the world. We're always victims of these dark forces. And... And, it, you know, we could really kind of feel the downward spiral of that narrative. And then there's another a very strong narrative in the Passover story, which says, yes, all of that is true. And we've learned throughout history what it feels like to be powerless. Uh, we have learned how to be marginalized and succeed and, and, and survive. And we've learned what it feels like to be vulnerable. So and now we can use that. We can feel for all those who are in our shoes, who are, who are in those shoes today, who are in the shoes that we used to wear. We have built up a kind of empathy in our DNA. So let's go use it. Yeah. <laughs> let's go reach out. Let's go feel for the people on the margins of our society, whether it's the frontline workers or the people in who are just uh, hourly wage earners who can't stay at home. Uh, who don't have water to wash their hands, who, who are more powerless than we are. And let's go enact our core values and, and go take care of the world, take care of people that are, um, and love the stranger, love the, the ones who are now suffering what we used to suffer. One thing I, I wanted to, to also say in response to the great data that we were presented about the impact of stress on the, not only mental health, but physical health, of those who, who experience trauma, especially as young people. One of the things that we're doing at Bayan uh, Islamic Graduate School is that we are training American Muslim imams um, in, in how to identify young people who are experiencing uh, psychological uh, challenges or uh, emotional stress in their home environments. We bring a psychiatrist as one of our faculty from Yale uh, to, to teach them to identify depression or uh, abuse, uh, neglect, uh, even uh, uh, bipolar disorder and other things, not to be able to treat it, but to be able to escalate it to a mental health professional. For although our faith traditions are, are rich and they give us so much by way of tools to navigate uh, through trauma, uh, we also have to recognize that there are mental health professionals, there are people in social work who um, can can be additive to what it is that faith brings and and we need to make sure to uh, involve them when necessary as faith communities and not try and solve everything with faith that's a really interesting point jihad thanks for making that and and I'm sure um, dr. Firestone you might have something to add to that as somebody who's studied psychology as well uh, it's interesting thinking about these different faith communities as, as places to perhaps um, be open to different levels of mental suffering, to be able to locate a mental illness. Um, what would you add to that? Yeah, I, I think that's so important. We're all in the business right now of stepping up our pastoral care online, mostly, and uh, 
and reaching beyond ourselves to provide some sense of peace and uh, teaching people how to look inside for that inner peace, as well as giving verbal and uh, and pastoral support. Uh, it makes me think uh, what the imam is saying. It makes me think of the in my last book, Wounds into Wisdom. I share studies of people uh, from around the world who have endured huge trauma, and yet they have defied the normative trauma responses. Somehow they went through the eye of the needle and they be, they emerged whole, and and then they teach. And the advice they give is uh, really helpful right now. The advice they give is, first of all, to face losses, to to really feel feel the the grief and the anxiety that you're feeling, but not to get lost there. Uh, to connect with others, to find your tribe, to find others that you can talk to, and tell your story and tell your anxieties. Uh, to take meaningful action, certainly, uh, but especially uh, they all teach the same thing. That's to remember that you control your own fate, no matter what you've gone through, no matter what uh, the tragedy is that you've lived through, no matter what trauma you are enduring. You you can control your own narrative, the meaning that you make out of your suffering and uh, that that really we are uh, we're in charge of our destinies with God of course side by side we're partners in creating our destiny so uh, it's uh, for me in doing a lot of pastoral care right now it's encouraging people to remember that we are so powerful uh, we do not have to fall uh, victim we don't have to be victims to what's unfolding in the world, but to rise to our highest selves and and to keep uh, to keep enacting our what we believe, what, who we want to be, and uh, the, our greatest selves. Yeah, I was just going to say that reminds me of a a Quranic verse that that states that God does not burden any soul with the responsibility of more than it has the capacity to bear. That's a promise in the Quran, and it's a very powerful promise because that that sort of alleviates us of the moral burden that we might uh, have if, let's say, we were abused as a young person and that has impacted us in some way. We know that God is not also holding us to a standard more than, than we have the capacity to endure. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a spiritual relief and gift to know that you know God's compassion is so broad, and uh, it is empowering, as uh, the good Rabbi Rabbi Firestone was just saying, to know that we can be uh, and empowered along with God in 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 forging ahead and in forming our pathway uh, and destiny in life. Hmm. Rabbi Firestone, um, just again going back to look at any scripture or stories that come to mind when you think about the kind of the cyclic nature of trauma in your faith. Um, what are you telling people to to rely on right now? Is it community? Is it prayer? Is it silence? What other what other lessons could you share with us right now? Yeah, the cyclical nature of trauma and and uh, and suffering. Yes, and I think every tradition. Uh, teaches that and how do we build that storehouse on the inside of uh, storehouse of peace and also carve out that inner landscape uh, that is going to uh, or carve out we could say a channel to the divine channel to uh, that inner peace or to God however we like to say that well prayer is huge just as in Islam uh, for us uh, Jews and just as important I think acts of kindness 
because we're enacting our inner peace. We're enacting our care. We're, we're uh, voting with our feet, so to speak, in the world. So uh, whether that is uh, regular donations of money um, that we might be spending eating out or going to a concert, helping people at the edges of our society. You know, it's like living with your heart broken open. I think that that's uh, living close to tears, as Albert Camus used to say, or once said when he wrote uh, about the plague, you know, letting our letting our heartbreak, leading with our heartbreak. Uh, where does our heartbreak take us? Like uh, in Denver, there's a ICE detention center that uh, just let out many, many people. And these families that were just released had nowhere to go. And literally within hours through a volunteer network called, called Casa Paz, all of these families were taken in. There were more volunteers than there were families to take these people in. And uh, it's just, it, it just uh, keep, it keeps your heart very open. Okay, so prayer, working on our connection to God, doing things, uh, meaningful acts, whatever that is for you. And for each person, it's going to be different, whether it's cooking or gardening and sharing, uh, calling somebody up. Uh, the, you know, it's really connecting in with the power of our ancestors and our great leaders, uh, those who have really suffered deeply but surmounted their tragedies and said, no, life is about suffering. Let's rise to, to the highest ground we can. Jihad Turk, uh, kind of a similar question to you. I, I know that these are often times in which we would all want to be together and, and share a common space. But, but for you, speaking to people um, in isolation right now, um, uh, are you asking them uh, to, to sit with themselves, to, to pray, to, to make calls, to make gifts? What, what, what goes through your mind when you think of these messages? Well, you know, it's, it, this is an interesting time uh, in the Muslim calendar to be facing social distancing and isolation because it's the month of Ramadan, which is a month of, of fasting and refraining from food and drink um, uh, during the daylight hours and then intensive prayer and socializing in the evenings in which, you know, you break bread together. You, it's really a very lively social dynamic that usually takes place in the month of Ramadan. And so there's a, a lot of, of, of imagination happening in the community about how Ramadan will look um, during this time of social distancing as we try and, and lower the curve for, the, for, for what we're facing with COVID. The, 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 the teachings of Muhammad and the, the teachings of the scripture and the Quran uh, help because ultimately this time of fasting gives us an opportunity to be introspective, to reflect and to really understand and listen to our own breath, hear our own heartbeat, and understand what, what inspires us, what motivates us, and work on, on improving our character and thinking creatively how we can, even as we're apart from each other social, uh, through social distancing how it is that we can still be in service of one another, contribute to the greater good. I've been speaking with Jihad Turk, founding president of Bayan Claremont Islamic Graduate School. Jihad, thank you for your time. My honor. And Rabbi Dr. Tears of Firestone is a psychotherapist, author, and spiritual leader in the international Jewish renewal movement. Um, Rabbi, we appreciate the time. Thank you. I loved being here. Thank you so much. 
Well, that's all for today. You've been listening to KCRW's Foxhole. You can learn more about the show at kcrw.com foxhole or download the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and we'll see you next week.